Hi, I'm Christopher, and today we're having a conversation about the Republic of Jamaica. Join us. Today's episode is going to be about republicanism in Jamaica and uh, some of the ramifications of republicanism and a few things that we'd have to do to get there and a little bit of a history behind that conversation in Jamaica. Now, when I say republicanism, I do not mean republicanism in terms of a political party or a political ideology. I am talking about the simple act, or should I say the complicated act, of declaring ourselves as a republic. Now, I'm going to look at what happened on both sides of the political spectrum, and I'm going to talk a little bit about what has to be done in order for us to get there. Now, we're going to have that conversation, but before we do that, I just have to tell you the reason for this. I was at home one day watching the opening of the Parliament of Barbados when their Governor General, uh, Her Excellency Dame Sandra Mason, was giving the speech and she was going on and on and on until she came to a point where she mentioned that Barbados would make steps to becoming a republic by the end of next year. And that started the wheels in my head turning. And I said to myself, why haven't we done this yet in Jamaica? So this episode is dedicated to the people of Jamaica, the people of Barbados, and Mia Motley, wherever you are in this world. Big up your damn self. Let's go. History tells us that leaders who argue for an end to Jamaica's monarchy do so because abolition will help complete the circle of Jamaica's independence. They say that we are not fully independent as long as we retain our allegiance to the queen. It's easy to support this perspective. For anything, independence should mark us out as people longing to exercise our right to self-determination. It should mean that we are prepared to develop our own symbols of national pride. We should be ready to identify our own heroes, generate our own national pride sources, and appreciate the history of and for our own people. None of this undermines our heritage. So we can retain links, if we so choose, with the Commonwealth and celebrate the range of our culture and admire different aspects of the cultures of different countries. However, independence ought to mean walking through the world on our feet, not on our knees, and on our own terms. Independence implies separation in the most basic sense. But, upon independence in 1962, our leaders kept the Queen as our head of state. They took extra steps to ensure that the monarchy could not be removed without the majority support of the electorate in a referendum. Let's go back in history a little bit, shall we? In 1975, Prime Minister at the time, Michael Manley, named a committee to deal with constitutional reform. 
There was a symbolic reenactment after that of Paul Bogle's march on the Morant Bay Courthouse, and there Prime Minister Manley outlined a whole program for implementing a new Jamaican Republic by 1981. And now, 39 years later, we are still not yet a republic. Something is wrong. But becoming a republic will represent emancipation from mental slavery. No, Republican status won't feed hungry bellies. Republican status alone won't turn Jamaica into a first world country. But that boost that should accompany it will, with, a, with a little bit of social reengineering, with an emphasis on a new consciousness, will give us a renewed drive to accomplish our Vision 2030 goals. But are we really prepared for Republican status when so many persons still argue in big, big 2020 that Jamaica was better off as a colony? If the Queen arrived tomorrow, no one would really care. If we were talking about the year 2000, it would have been a different situation, or 2003, which was the last time Queen Elizabeth visited Jamaica. But the JLP, under the leadership of Edward Siaga, outlined the type of republic that he and the JLP would want to see. The first time he made this postulation was in 1977, during his budget speech in Parliament, and at various times after that. But when the JLP went back to office in the 1980s and in 2011 and again in 2016, nothing was done. Now, when Siaga was the leader of the opposition, he and his JLP at the time chose to obstruct the government on constitutional reform. Let me tell you why. At the time, the PNP administration, led by P.J. Patterson, chose to go ahead with trying to bring Jamaica under the jurisdiction of the Caribbean Court of Justice without a referendum. But that referendum, of course, never happened. And right now our highest court is still the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council based in London. But the blame isn't just on the Labour Party. Stuff happens with the PNP as well. Because at one point in time, Mr. Patterson and his PNP members at the time felt that the new president of the Republic of Jamaica should be the head of government as well as the head of state, and that that person should have the final responsibilities and the final say when it comes to governing and governance. And of course, the JLP wanted the power to stay with the prime minister. The JLP wanted an appointed president who would be ceremonial with stripped-down duties just like a monarch, or in our case, just like the governor general. So what they wanted to do was to just make us a republic and slap on president onto the governor general instead of governor general, which is just a cosmetic change. But because of the conflict between the parties on how a republic would look, that conversation has been languishing in parliament for the better part of 25 years. And at no point was the question put to the people in a referendum. Now, unfortunately, throughout Mr. Patterson's term, the devaluation of the Jamaican dollar reintroduced a very ugly economic situation, 
which Bruce Golding then had no choice but to inherit. Now, Bruce Golding wanted to remove the Queen, but he never really gave his full attention to the issue. Between the IMF and the recession in 2008, and then the extradition battle over Christopher Koch, Mr. Golding was in no position to effectively establish a Republican state. This man had no more political capital to spend after 2010. But that was then. What about now? In the 58 years since independence, proposals to abolish the monarchy have been advanced in the public sphere. These proposals are built on the premise that the British monarchy, which is a British institution, does not properly serve the purposes of a modern Jamaica. Now, some Jamaicans will argue for a republic as a means to fulfill our tryst with history. Given that it would give meaning to our independence. Jamaica nowadays is considerably more democratic than it had been 58 years ago. And as a part of this enhanced democracy, many would question the virtue of the divine right of rulers in determining our head of state, which is how the monarch in the UK derives their legitimacy. But you would be very hard-pressed to find in today's Jamaica any opinion in favor of a divine right to rule. At the same time, Republican movements in Jamaica receive strength from our enhanced notions of egalitarianism. The whole unequal concept of royalty seems exceptionally incompatible with the quest for social equality among citizens. Why should a foreign monarch reign over citizens who don't perceive themselves as subjects of anyone? And I use the term subjects very strongly because British people still see themselves as subjects of the monarch. Now, some analysts would throw in the question of race as well because during the Queen's visit to Jamaica in 1983, a gentleman by the name of Fred Archer, who is a known monarchist, argued that it is obviously unfitting that a white foreign monarch should continue as head of state of a mainly black populated independent country for all time. This gentleman was someone who supported the monarchy and had been open in his support for the monarchy. And even he decided that, you know, we can't continue this forever. Another consideration working in favor of Republican sentiment is the monarch's restricted role in Jamaican affairs. What's the aim of the monarch in our socio-political relations today? Some believe that the monarch serves as an emblem of national unity. However, this is just not true. Suppose the purpose of the monarch is to inspire unity. In that case, it would be easy to argue that a Jamaican president living above the petty partisan parliamentary politics, but in tune with the society and the struggles and the dreams and the aspirations of the people, would serve this purpose much better than any British royal, even Prince Harry. Now, let me just say this. It shouldn't be believed that the Republic of Jamaica's mere concept would imply or lead to 
a breakdown in relations with the United Kingdom. Dominica, I'll use this example, Dominica became a republic upon their independence in 1978. And they still interact with Great Britain and the rest of the Commonwealth. In fact, one of their own countrywomen right now, Baroness Patricia Scotland, the Baroness Astell, is the Secretary General of the Commonwealth right now, if you're listening to me in October 2020. She is the, she, she is the SG of the Commonwealth, and before that, she was Attorney General of the United Kingdom under Tony Blair. Likewise, Guyana and Trinidad and Tobago entered independence as monarchies, but they became republics afterward. Each republic remains active members of the Commonwealth of Nations. Sir Sridath Ramphal from Guyana served as Secretary-General at one point too. And there is no significant evidence that republican status has hindered diplomatic exchange with Britain. Supporters of the status quo in Jamaica tend to put forward at least two arguments. They will posit that the monarchy has promoted stability and democracy in post-independence Jamaica and that those virtues should not be disregarded. And along with that, they point out that Republican countries in Latin America, our friends, seem more prone to coup d'etat than countries that retain the monarch as head of state. Now, this line is not convincing at all. To be sure, some Latin American countries are prone to authoritarian control and dictatorships, but these realities aren't necessarily caused by ideology. On the contrary, the people that perpetrate these arguments can't grasp the precise political circumstances in those countries. To put the whole burden of socio-political and historical issues in a very country all the way down to the Republican status of that country is simply to ignore reality. Moreover, to mention that republicanism in itself is the reason for Latin American challenges is to disregard the very fact that most of the world's republics are stable in this modern era. It conveniently ignores that three Commonwealth republics in CARICOM have shown no inclinations to political instability in this era aside from Trinidad in 1990. And comparing that to other countries in the region, we are okay. On the other hand, their argument of retaining the monarchy continues to confirm the acceptance of the inherent superiority, I'm using that term very loosely, of things British over things Jamaican. This argument is no longer acceptable in 2020. And since it's no longer acceptable, we should never, ever be deterred from creating the country that we want to see. Now, I'm going to give you some suggestions as to what I think a Republic of Jamaica should look like. Now, I am not proclaiming this as any gospel. This is just my personal thought as a citizen. For me, a Republic of Jamaica would entail a new constitutional arrangement with the following things. First of all, 
uh, I would want a new constitution that outlines human rights and grants us the rights we have now under chapter 3 but I would add sexual orientation and gender identity as classes protected from discrimination I would also put in the constitution that you can marry whomever you want if we as Jamaicans are so concerned with human rights and justice and equality and equity then equality of marriage has to be on the table I know a lot of people will not like that but it's the truth and in that new constitution we would be a parliamentary republic we would have a popularly elected but ceremonial president and a prime minister coming from the House of Representatives like we have now. But the parliament would have to change. I'm sorry. A new parliament would have 90 members elected on a mixed member proportional system similar to what exists in New Zealand. We would have 60 MPs elected from constituencies and 30 elected from party lists with a 5% threshold to be able to gain seats in parliament. So in that system, when you vote, you would cast a vote for your local MP and then you'd vote for a party. Now that would give rise to independence and smaller parties so that they can get a chance to enter parliament and change the national discourse and change the way we make our laws. But let's just say this as well. In a multi-party democracy, an MMP system almost always forces coalition governments. Now, don't look at Jacinda's victory on Saturday. That is an anomaly. For those of you listening right now, Jacinda Ardern had won her second term in a landslide. She won an outright majority in the New Zealand parliament in an MMP system, and that is rare in itself because it doesn't normally happen. Uh, I would cap our cabinet at 16 ministries with fixed names and encourage more utilization of the parliamentary committees to do the bulk of the legislating. Now, when you have 90 members, with 16 of them plus the Prime Minister and the Speaker out of the mix, you have 72 non-cabinet members. They can do the committee work. They can do all of that stuff. They can be the ones amending bills, writing bills, and bringing them to the rest of the house for the rest of the house to debate and vote on and pass. You can have each and every committee filled with members, and then those committees would hold, over time, they would develop certain powers to be able to block bad measures and to hold the government of the day accountable for their actions. That's the kind of House of Representatives that we need. And when you have so many backbenchers, those backbenchers would have the ability to actually take care of their constituencies and go to speak with their constituents and represent their views in the House. For the ones elected on the lists, they could represent the whole country. Or, let's say one party wins a majority of seats on the geographic list, the constituency list. The other party could send out people into all of those constituencies to live with people and to talk to them. 
and to get their views so that when the next election comes around, they would be more able to provide effective representation for people. We are entering an era now in Jamaican politics where people are no longer voting because of tradition or who their family vote for or whatever. People are voting based on performance and you have to perform if you want to govern. That's the long and short of it. Now for the Senate, I'm going to keep this one short. I think that we can keep the Senate appointed but open up the appointment process to the public. So if someone wants to be a senator, they would have to, you know, do some kind of application and background check and all that stuff. And we have to increase the size of the Senate. But in order to keep the golden ratio that we have of 13 to 8, we'd have to increase the Senate on both sides. So for every one seat you add to the government, you add one to the opposition. So what I would do is give the government 19 seats and give the opposition 11, right? So we would have 30 seats in the Senate. And that way, the government would still need at least one opposition senator to agree to major constitutional changes which require that two-thirds majority. Now, in that Senate, for me at least, you would still need about, what, one, two, five, probably five, no more than five ministers, no less than two, no more than five, coming from the Senate. And that could work. That could work. Now, one idea that I have been floating for a while is allowing opposition senators, not sorry, allowing independent senators to be appointed directly by the president in this new Jamaica based on their contributions to society. You know, appointing some educators, some business people, representatives from the LGBTQ community, other marginalized groups in society. And a, an ideal situation would be kind of similar to what persists in the House of Lords in the UK because no government in the UK ever has a majority in the House of Lords. In fact, they're almost always outnumbered two to one. So I would suggest giving five seats or more to independent senators and drowning out the government in the Senate, which means the government in the Senate would have to work with the opposition to get the best possible legislation out there for Jamaican people. That's what I think. And I think now would be a good time for a final thought. So today we talked about the history behind the talks about the Constitution of Jamaica and I gave you some suggestions as to what I believe a new republic should look like. Now if I hadn't made it any clearer in the past 20 something minutes, I am very much in favor of the creation of a Jamaican republic because I just think the time has come. It's been 365 years 
since Jamaica had been under the British crown in some shape or another. 365 years. That's a long, long time for us to be oppressed and held down by people whom we may never even meet. For people whom if we wanted to go visit them, we'd have to get visas to go there. Come on, Jamaica. Something has to give now. 365 years is way too long. Unless you want to wait another 365 years and we'll still have this problem. No, it's not right. Now, I know this is just a small little podcast from some guy living in Florida who happens to have been born and raised in Jamaica. But in the far-off event that this reaches the Attorney General and the Prime Minister, do something about it. It has been too damn long, and you, the people who we elect and the people who our taxes pay have been twiddling your fingers about this for too damn long. You are in your second term now, AG and Prime Minister. Do something about it. Do not give us the lame excuse that you had no time to deal with it because of other things. Get it done. You have the numbers to do it in the parliament and the people will damn well support you if you do it. So just get it done. Today's quote comes from Bob Hawke, who lived from 1929 to 2019. Bob Hawke served as the Prime Minister of Australia from 1983 to 1991. Prime Minister Hawke once said that the essence of power is the knowledge that what you do is going to have an effect, not just an immediate, but perhaps a lifelong effect on the happiness and well-being of millions of people. And so I think the essence of power is to be conscious of what it can mean for others. Until next time, I'm Christopher Nurse. Walk good.